Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on this afternoon's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Heather Hall. Heather is the CEO of Inspire Community Enterprise Trust Limited, trading as the usual place, a training provider which offers young people with additional support needs, employability skills and opportunities, primarily in the hospitality, front of house, retail and facilities services sectors. Um, Heather, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. It's uh, been a real honour to have been invited to take part. And it's a real pleasure for us to welcome you onto the airwaves and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us again. Um, The whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we dive straight into that topic. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, Heather, especially since it's been dominated the headlines again this week, I think it's appropriate that we do start there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree that it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders in all walks of life. But how has it affected you and your operations in recent months? It's been a huge challenge for us to navigate um, all the changes and all the developments since the country was put into lockdown. And we had to really without any real notice, close the usual place and deal with everything that goes along with that, with being a training provider and also a hospitality provider. So there were lots of challenges along the way. And then to spend the time during the lockdown period working out how we were going to survive that, but also how we were going to come back and build back better. At the same time, We knew that we had to work with our young people to keep their spirits up, to keep their level of optimism strong and to work and engage with them and all our partners to be thinking ahead for the future. And just reflecting on the experience that you've had managing through this pandemic, um, we are looking to try to find some silver lining in what's been quite a dark and dense cloud over all of us. Are there, therefore, any sort of positives that you can take from this in the sense that maybe you've learned something about yourself in a leadership capacity or even about the people that you work with? Yes, there are a couple of huge positives in what's happened. I think for our young people, sometimes they struggle to get on in life because of the attitudes that surround them. Young people with additional support needs generally aren't considered capable of doing uh, much at all, and certainly not much in terms of employment. And the statistics are very poor for people with learning disabilities and employment. 4.1% of people with a learning disability are in employment. And the employment that our young people generally aspire to is that of the service industries, of retail, mm. of hospitality, of cleaning, etc. And actually, there's been a complete paradigm shift in how these Um, occupations are considered by the general public because these are the people who've kept the country going, absolutely kept the country going. Our carers, our retail workers, our postmen, our delivery drivers. There has been a huge shift in expectation for our young people. And we think that bodes very well for the future. 
and that they'll be positively regarded. And some of our graduates are actually working now in the retail sector as key workers and are really proud of that status. And I think the other key um, positive that's come out of this, we started to get together with our young people online weekly, and they really struggled with that. A lot of them find digital literacy hard. So we've worked with them and done some training and some learning, and 10 of our young people have achieved a qualification in digital literacies, and in fact have already used these qualifications to help others who are less digitally literate. So a couple of fantastic positives in what's been a very, very difficult time for everyone. That's certainly encouraging to hear. And I do agree with you. I think um, the people within these industries are those that have been keeping the country running during this uh, particular time. And perceptions towards those sectors certainly are changing. However, with, of course, the Prime Minister's announcements um, earlier this week, just for the benefit of those listening to this, we are recording on the 23rd of September. So literally the day before this discussion, Prime Minister Boris Johnson stood before the Commons and announced various new COVID-19 restrictions which is requiring the hospitality industry to close uh, between the hours of 10pm and 5am. UK Hospitality is one such trade body, Heather, of course, that has warned that there could be severe implications um, from that move, particularly with regard to future redundancies if, of course, the furlough scheme isn't extended or replaced when it winds down at the end of October. So although perceptions are changing toward these sectors for the better, do you think that there will still be enough opportunities for young people within these sectors in the long term? I think that's going to be a challenge. I think there's definitely going to be changes afoot. I think for us, we we are only making a third of the income that we were making before we shut. And I think the, the new rules have definitely impacted on that. And we are looking round about us and there's been um, a considerable number of closures already for cafes and small enterprises that really can't meet the space requirements. So there's, there's, there are some real challenges out there. Um, but I do believe in the entrepreneurial spirit of um, the British people, actually. And indeed, I do think that once things change, um, then I think the sector will re-emerge. And I think in particular, the help out, the eat out to help out um, scheme really got people back into cafes and restaurants. And although that's a bit of a challenge now, it shows that with the right sort of support and the right sort of investment, when the time is right, that I think the sector will re-emerge stronger than ever. And I certainly believe in that and working with our partners in this part of Southwest Scotland, we're working really hard together to make sure that we can look forward to our future, which is positive. So for our young people, yes. But I do think as well, many of our young people, although they're learning about hospitality, a lot of our young people go and work in other in other professions because it's the other skills that they learn mm-hmm. um, in terms of uh, work ethic, um, being able to work alongside different teams, enables them to work in any sector. And of course, with um, unemployment projected to be on the rise, there is going to be more of a need for training services. So it is very much the case that demand for the services that you provide could well be shooting up over the uh, the next few months. So there is something there uh, to consider as well. Yes, I think the demand for um, services like ours, which provide the level of training that we provide, I think there will be an increase in demand for that. And 
one of the things that we're doing at the moment is we're really future-proofing the work that we do to make sure that we're ready to respond to that need and to that challenge and to that opportunity. And just sort of switching focus ever so slightly to talk about leadership a little bit more broadly. Um, it's something that I've noticed during this time is that people in charge of businesses and organisations have become a lot more self-aware of their responsibilities to inspire and motivate people in the sense that keeping people motivated, keeping people reassured during a time of crisis like this is a significant challenge, particularly when some of the information that's out there isn't always clear, let's say. Now, when you are an employee, I suppose you do have um, that ability to look above you to consult executives and directors to try and get that reassurance when you need it. But when you are in a CEO's position, an executive director's position, where there isn't anybody above you to consult as such, where is it that you tend to look to for direction and inspiration and just a bit of reassurance as and when you need it? I think there's many leaders out there who I look at and and admire. And I think today we were reflecting on different leaders. And I think one of the leaders that inspires me most is Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister. Mm. I think, And I think it's that active acceptance of responsibility in all the various crises she's hit during her term of office, not least the COVID crisis, but also in the wake of the mosque shooting. She showed that great level of empathy with those affected, made clear statements about the values of her country, not being reflected by the actions of the gunmen. And I think she took everybody with her. And I think it's about taking people with you. That's really important. We have three values in the usual place. Everyone's of equal worth. Everyone can contribute to their community. and Everyone should be treated with dignity and respect. And we never lose sight of those values. And I think if you keep those values at your feet and your goal, which in our case is providing opportunities, life-changing opportunities for young people with additional support needs, we're not going to stray too far. And I do think there's lots of really inspiring people out there locally and and nationally who um, I look to. Yes, I can certainly see uh, the merit in the example that you mentioned there. Of course, Jacinda Arden is one leader who's come under, um, well, she's come in line for a lot of praise, um, I should uh, say, actually, uh, because um, a lot of people have been comparing the response that New Zealand have put into um, the uh, the pandemic compared to a lot of other countries. And certainly um, that does um, fare very, very well, I have to say. Um, and when we think of sort of inspiring the next generation of leaders. One thing I wanted to touch on before we do uh, wrap up on the programme today, Heather, is um, you have now several years of experience in um, a leadership field, of course. So for those younger generations of people who may be listening into this and are aspiring leaders themselves, what message do you have for them during a time like this to really encourage them on the road to success? I think it's about integrity. I think for me, leadership is about integrity, personal and professional integrity. It's about being true to values. It's about saying what you're going to do and doing and doing it. It's about being open and honest if things don't work. And often things don't work out as planned, but it's understanding why and what you've learned. And being able to understand and see things from other people's point of view. And it is as well having sometimes that just that emotional toughness 
sometimes leaders have got to be tough and take difficult decisions, which aren't always popular. Leadership isn't always about being liked. It is about delivering fairness, even when it's not what people want to know. But I think, for me, integrity and listening leadership is the key. I can certainly see where you're coming from there, Heather. And I think that authenticity, as you say there, is incredibly right. Of course, being honest with people, being open, being transparent, it's so, so important, particularly during a time like this. Um, I do want to talk about the future as well, just before we do uh, finish up on the programme today. Um, we do know that over the course of the uh, the next 12 months, um, we are going to have to adjust to this new normal, as they call it, in the way that we live and the way that we work. But over this period of time, what is it that you're hoping to really achieve at the usual place and indeed where do you see your organization being in 12 months time well our strategy has always been driven by our young people with additional support needs um leadership doesn't have to be we don't have to have a monopoly on the good ideas listening to trainees has brought some forward some of our some of our really best developments actually and they've been central to all our um, decision making, they are the, they're at the core of every decision that we make, what is going to work for them, keeping our values there, listening to our young people, hearing what they've got to say and involving them really in all our decision making. And at the moment, we're talking to our young people, talking to our trainees, getting a sense of where they're at, where they think they want to be, where they see themselves. And also, um, we're, uh, we, we have earn our own income, we get a good income, or we did get a good income, less so now, but we're on our way back, we hope. We have some grant funding, so we've managed to get hold of some um, a pivotal income funding as a pivotal organisation, so that will shore us up for a bit. So the government have got some great strategies and, and funding opportunities for us to, to access. Um, I see us coming back together and getting started on our assessments and on our work with young people so that they can see the future um, positively. And I see that starting to happen. Our young people are our future and we're working with them each day. Um, we've got some really exciting new developments um, and we're really hoping to be working with the NHS locally. We've got a brand new programme. Our young people will be working with the NHS as partners. We're just about to have some research published in the Journal of Social Entrepreneurship, sorry, the Journal of Social Enterprise, which looks at our model of work and how that can be translated into other sectors. And we've already proven that that works. So we're looking to work with some other organisations um, locally and nationally to take forward our model, which is all about young people being at the centre of every decision and achieving their ambition and moving on to achieve their best life as full citizens. That's our objective. Sounds like there's so much inspiring stuff on the horizon for yourselves at the usual place, Heather, and I certainly wish you all of the luck in the world in those endeavours. And just given how inspiring it's been having you join us this afternoon, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next year and have you back on the show just to see how indeed things are coming along. We'd be very happy to come back and actually maybe the next time we come back, I'll be have a young person with me and they can tell you exactly what it feels like to be here and lead as well. 
I'd certainly welcome that opportunity, of course, to hear more diverse voices um, in the world of leadership. It's what the Leaders' Council, of course, is all about. Um, Heather, thank you ever so much um, for your time again today. It's been a real, real pleasure to welcome you onto the programme. And most importantly, until hopefully we do touch base again, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Thank you very much. I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. I was speaking on today's programme to Heather Hall, CEO of Inspire Community Enterprise Trust Limited, otherwise known as The Usual Place. I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and consider others. It makes a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He's been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015 and served during his days as an MP as the local parliamentary representative for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary 
often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of... Thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.